Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. You may have heard, but Aspergillus has been in the news quite a bit as of late, and many in the industry are questioning whether it's appropriate or necessary to test inhaled cannabis products for pathogenic aspergillus. Full disclosure, we at Medicinal Genomics sell qPCR testing kits designed to detect pathogenic aspergillus on cannabis products. We have also published several resources on our website that describe the potential harms that can be caused by inhaling pathogenic aspergillus. And we cite more than two dozen aspergillosis cases in cannabis users. We have also recommended that states that are considering cannabis testing regulations adopt pathogenic aspergillus testing. Not because we sell aspergillus kits, but because we want to protect patients. By almost any measure, cannabis is one of the most safe and effective medicines available. And in many cases, the potential harms that come from using cannabis are not caused by the plant, but rather contaminants. And although cases are rare, the documented cases describing aspergillosis deaths from contaminated cannabis vastly outnumber the published clinical risks of any other contaminant for which cannabis industry tests. There are no documented deaths for cannabis-derived heavy metals, mycotoxins, pesticides, or incorrect cannabinoid labeling. The same cannot be said for aspergillus. So that is our position. But of course, we acknowledge that we are biased and we are not experts on pathogenic fungi. However, our guest today is. Dr. David Denning is a professor of infectious diseases and global health at the University of Manchester. He was the founding president, executive director, and chief executive of Global Action for Fungal Infections an organization dedicated to reducing the worldwide burden of fungal diseases. In 2016, he became the director of the National Aspergillosis Center in Manchester, which treats patients with chronic pulmonary aspergillosis. And he also led the committee that developed the first CPA guidelines. He chairs the editorial board of a website which focuses on aspergillus and he leads an organization which provides education on fungal diseases. In short, Dr. Denning is one of the leading authorities on all things aspergillus, and we asked him many of the questions that have been debated on social media recently. Those include, should cannabis be tested for pathogenic aspergillus? Should there be an allowable limit for pathogenic aspergillus? Is aspergillosis only a concern for immunocompromised patients? Are the number of aspergillosis cases underreported? How difficult is aspergillosis to diagnose and treat? How ubiquitous is aspergillus in the air we breathe? And much more. Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Denning, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Modern Canna. Modern Canna is regarded as Florida's first medical cannabis laboratory and one of the most trusted third-party laboratories in the United States. The company's mission is to help set the standard for cannabis testing labs worldwide by providing the most accurate and efficient testing services, delivered with a sense of compassion 
integrity, and moral obligation, and to attract and attain clients who value quality data that is verifiable, reproducible, and legally defensible. Modern Canna is the only Leafly certified laboratory in the Eastern United States and adheres to the industry's strictest SOPs and quality standard controls. Modern Canna offers a wide variety of testing, rapid turnaround times, and consulting services to the Florida medical marijuana treatment centers and hemp businesses throughout the U.S. Learn more at moderncanna.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Denning. Good morning, Dr. Denning. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Right. Well, I'm a, I'm excited to talk with you today. Um, as some of our audience may know, aspergillus has been a bit of a hot topic in the cannabis space recently. Most notably, growers in Oregon recently petitioned the state to halt aspergillus testing on cannabis products, arguing that the testing was unnecessary unnecessary and negatively impacting their business. We at Medicinal Genomics disagree, but of course, we also acknowledge that we may be a bit biased, which is why I reached out to Dr. Denning to come on the podcast and discuss the topic. So to get started, Dr. Denning, why don't you tell the audience a bit about yourself and your experience studying aspergillus and aspergillosis? Great. Um well, my background is in clinical infectious diseases. I trained as a physician in the UK, uh, did some postgraduate training in the UK, and then spent three years at Stanford uh, doing further training in infectious diseases and microbiology, and have been working in Manchester for over 30 years since that time. Um, most of my research work and a lot of my clinical work has been on patients with fungal diseases, and my area of focus has been on aspergillus and aspergillosis uh, infections and for about 10 years up until about three years ago I led the UK's National Aspergillosis Centre and we received patients about 300 patients a year from all over the UK with difficult complex aspergillus cases and, and disease problems. Great so what is it about aspergillus why did you choose to focus on that? It's a very remarkable organism, Aspergillus, because uh, while it's present all over the world and in almost every breath of air that you breathe in, there are certain species uh, that cause disease, and not most of them don't. And there are also um, different types of disease caused by the same organisms. So, for example, if you have leukemia and you have a Aspergillus in your lungs or you breathe in a substantial amount of aspergillus, then you can get what's called invasive aspergillosis. And that is usually a fatal disease if it's not diagnosed and treated correctly. And because it's a fungus, it doesn't respond to standard antibiotics. It's important to use antifungal drugs. Mm -hmm. um, other patients at risk for invasive aspergillosis are patients who've had a transplant, patients with severe flu, who are on ICU, patients with severe COVID on ICU, and people taking steroids, 
Um, so any immunocompromised group of patients really are at risk uh, and at different levels of risk. Um, so the, the other groups of patients that get aspergillosis infections are people with severe asthma um, and aspergillus and a few other fungi as well make asthma worse. So your symptom control is worse. You're more likely to get exacerbations, more likely to end up in the ER uh, if you're exposed to fungus. And, uh, and that's a problem. So it doesn't affect the, those with just very mild asthma that occasionally need to use their blue inhaler, you know, once a week or what, twice, once or twice a day. It's the patients on steroid inhalers who have had problems with their asthma over the years. That's the group that are at risk. And then the third group of, of, of patients at risk of those with chronic chest problems, uh, typically patients with COPD or people with sarcoidosis or people who've had TB in the past uh, and those with bronchiectasis. There's a whole list of long-term chest complications and those patients can get um, worse if they're exposed to aspergillus, and it can also cause a very chronic, difficult to treat infection. Um, that the, the name for that infection is chronic pulmonary aspergillosis, or CPA, and that was what we specialised in, in in Manchester. Um, but it it occurs all over the world. We just were, tried to do an estimate of how many such patients there are in India, and we think there's about one and a half million people in India with this condition. So it's not. It's not very rare. Um, it's sort of uncommon, I think it would be fair to say. So, so just to summarize, you've got three different types. You've got invasive, which is immunocompromised or critical care. You've got chronic in these patients with chest disease, and you've got allergic, which is related to severe asthma and occasionally cystic fibrosis as well. Interesting. And so I'm sure it depends, but typically how are these patients becoming exposed to the aspergillus in order to acquire this infection? So on a normal um, standard day, poshing about one's home, maybe going to work and in an ordinary office or uh, school classroom or you know retail um, uh, venue, we would typically breathe in between 100 and 2000 spores of aspergillus every day. That would be a typical number. And it, it, unless you have uh, very severe immune problems, our um, normal immune system will uh, 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 attach the, itself to those spores and kill them pretty quickly. You get some cycling, so they take some time to kill, and not all of them are killed every day, but they can persist for some time. Um, and so that's the normal. What what is a concern is is when you're exposed to many many more spores than that. So, for example, if you were to um, dig out your compost heap and spread the compost on the garden, um, or you have bark chippings that you're spreading on on the garden, which have come and they're a little damp and it's been a bit and warm and damp, you may be exposed to many millions of spores, and those spores can set up infection for the very first time um, and cause an overwhelming infection in the lungs, which can lead actually to like a pneumonia 
And if that's not diagnosed, and it usually isn't because, you know, you when you arrive in the ER or the doctor's office with pneumonia, the assumption is that it's bacterial or it might be viral, but rarely do people think about it being fungal. Um, so a big, big spore exposure it causes disease in normal people, but particularly in people who've got chronic chest disease or are immunocompromised. Interesting. And now, so we are exposed to aspergillus throughout our day. And for the most part, our immune system can handle it. Is there a scenario where you could be exposed to a good amount of aspergillus that your immune system does clear, but sort of in the interim, you are experiencing some system, some symptoms, whether it be a persistent cough or, you know, something that you might otherwise attribute to, like you said before, um, a virus or something like that. Is that reasonable to assume? Yes. So some people will get a temporary problem. I I remember a husband-wife pair who bought a new house uh, and before they got into it, it got very, very damp and the wallpaper that was there was moldy and they stripped it all off in two days. Both of them ended up in hospital for several days and um and there was just fungus everywhere and it wasn't just aspergillus probably it was loads of fungi i think so you can get that and they both recovered one of them went on to get some long-term chronic problems in the chest the other one fully recovered um so your scenario that you paint is is possible um but of course it carries some risk because of the uncertainty about making a diagnosis treatment and actually the labeling of the disease is actually quite difficult in that context as well. Right. And that's, and that's a great point too. And in reviewing some of the materials that, that you've produced and some of the videos that it does seem that there is a difficulty in identifying, diagnosing, and even tracking cases of aspergillosis. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's true. So there's lots of reasons for that. The first is that not everybody produces some phlegm or sputum to send to the lab. The second is that the lab doesn't usually do a fungal culture unless it's requested. Fungal cultures are only about 30% sensitive, so they miss 70% of patients. And so we supplement that with antigen testing, which really only works in leukemia or if you do a bronchoscopy. And... In the patients with chronic disease or allergic disease, there's antibody testing. So you can do an IgG antibody, or if you have allergic disease, IgE antibody, and they are helpfully positive, but they're not perfect tests because they're not perfectly sensitive and perfectly specific. So there are difficulties. And then of course there's imaging. So you can have an X-ray or a CT scan of the chest and that can show and will show abnormalities in in patients with aspergillosis. But again, they may not be very specific for aspergillosis. They may represent other things. They Sometimes it, the chronic ones look just like TB, for example. So it's, this disease is often mistaken for TB. Um, and in allergic disease, it's more an airways infection. So there's not very much on the x-rays it's more an airways infection that's causing the in, uh, the disease. So the diagnosis is tricky and across the world, uh, possibly only a third of patients are actually diagnosed. I mean, I don't know the precise figure because it's a bit unknowable. How do you know how many are not diagnosed, right? right. So but it, 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 
probably it's, you know, somewhere between 20 and 40 percent are only are diagnosed across the world of all the different types of aspergillosis. Now, is it also difficult to sort of mine the data that is produced from from the hospitals or for that from the healthcare providers? Like, is there a difference in how it is sort of coded or tracked that makes things difficult as well? So one part of that is that most coding only occurs if you end up in hospital and stay a night in hospital. Most of the coding doesn't occur for outpatients. So a bad asthma attack, which is handled in the doctor's office with, of course, with steroids and antibiotics and so on, may not get coded at all, for example. So, so that's one part of the gap in coding. It's not completely true because some of the Kaiser units and some of the other units do document everything, but many only document inpatients. That's one problem. And secondly, because of the difficulty in diagnosis, a lot of the cases don't actually um, uh, hit the radar, as it were, because they're just not, they're missed. And then because many of these patients have other problems as well, for example, if you have bad COPD related to smoking or uh, occupational exposure, and you end up in hospital with an exacerbation and you're unwell, it'll all be down to the COPD and the exacerbation and aspergillus will be down at the bottom end of the corner if it's mentioned at all. Mm. And whereas that might have been and often is the driver for that exacerbation. Um, so there are lots of reasons why coding isn't perfect and you're quite right to point it out. Okay. And now forgive me if this puts you a bit on the spot, but so one of the main arguments that the Oregon cannabis growers have used to resist aspergillus testing is that the state was not able to produce a case of aspergillosis caused by contaminated cannabis. Now, given what you know about the difficulty of tracking, diagnosing aspergillus, um, is that necessarily a surprise to you? And is it reasonable to assume that there could be unreported cases? Yes, it's reasonable to assume there are unreported cases. Uh, and it's not a surprise to me because most doctors wouldn't report uh, an exposure like that. Also, because it's not the only place you get exposure, to absolutely pin it on a joint that you spoke three weeks ago or two weeks ago or even yesterday is not always obvious. So to the cause and effect piece. So... If you can imagine writing a, an article for a newspaper and trying to make that case, the editor's probably going to say, well, we just don't believe it, you know, because we there's lots of other ways you can catch it. So the cause and effect is difficult to prove as well in, in many instances. So the cautions about uh, smoking cannabis um, should probably relate to people who have anything wrong with their chest or any immune dysfunction. So the majority of people probably isn't going to affect them. That's the reality of it. Unless you smoke quite excessively large amounts or it's incredibly moldy weed. So some of the, a bit like these houses that we, you know, if you talk about black mold in houses and all that, you know, if it's super moldy, that's not a good idea. Um, but if it's just, a standard bit of weed and you're completely healthy and you have a joint or two joints or something, probably that risk is pretty low. It's not zero, actually. It's because you know, there's almost nothing in life that's zero risk, but it's a low risk. Um, however, there are a lot of people out there who've got 
cancer, semi-cured, but their immune systems are not right, got bad chests, asthma, very common in many, many groups, um, and people with undiagnosed things. So there are some genetic disorders which lead to aspergillosis. And one of the first cases reported linked to cannabis was unveiled that that genetic disorder, this young lad wasn't able to fight off aspergillus, smoked a joint and ended up with a new diagnosis of a genetic disorder showing that he couldn't handle aspergillus. So, so there are risks even in apparently normal people, although they, they're small, as I, as I point out. Probably the big deal here is two things. One of them is it's the fumigatus, aspergillus fumigatus is the most pathogenic of them. So other species of aspergillus are less important. Flavus is somewhat important, Niger somewhat important, possibly terrius, but there's about 300 other species out there. And then they're very, very, very rarely caused disease. So it's fumigatus, it's is the big driver for this. That's the first thing to, to say. But of course, if you're looking at a, a, a cigarette or a bit of weed or something, you're not gonna know whether what the species of fungus on there is. Uh, and so knowing that is probably is helpful. And the second is the is the amount. So, and many people smoke without a filter. So you get uh, the spores um, may be drawn in. So the end of the cigarette is hot where you've lit it, but the rest of the cigarette is not so hot. And the spores of aspergillus fumigatus is incredibly heat resistant. Mm. So it can survive up to 70 degrees C. Um, and uh, and grows up to about 50 degrees. So it isn't going to be killed by the passage of hot smoke coming down the cigarette. Yeah. And, and if there are spores in the rest of the cigarette, then those will get inhaled. Um, but it's about quantity. So if in that cigarette there's 10 spores or 500 spores of aspergillus, that's probably not going to be very serious. But if there's 10,000 spores or 100,000 spores, and there might easily be if that mold is, if the uh, if the marijuana is wet or damp, um, then that's a big, that's a big dose. Um, and if you only take one, if you share a, um, a, um, a joint with somebody and you only take one um, breath in with it, that's going to be lower risk than if you, you know, you make a big, big joint and you have three of them. So, so there's a quantity effect here as well as a, uh, so the species there's a quantity and uh, and the quality of the actual mo of the of the of the weed that's being smoked. No, and that's that's actually a very interesting point because the regulations in Oregon and in a lot of states as well, the limit is one CFU per gram. So essentially, what they're looking for is that one gram of the cannabis batch should be completely devoid of any pathogenic uh, aspergillus, the ones you named, Flavus, Fumigatus, Terius, Niger. Um, so with that in mind, is that an, is that an overly conservative amount? Should there be a, a, a higher allowable limit, in your opinion? Yes, I, I think that is too stringent uh, for this problem. Because I don't know how much a joint weighs, you can tell me, but you know, if it's 60 grams or 50 grams or something like that, that's only five, fifth, you know, 50 spores. That's a very low number of spores. So I think it would be 
okay to do two things. One of them is to raise that limit. So maybe it's 20 spores per gram or 10 spores per gram, somewhere in that range. So quite a lot higher than one gram. And secondly, to put a warning on about not smoking if you have any immunocompromising effects, if you have asthma or you have chest disease. Um, and if, if those two things probably would mean that the the number of people who would get ill from aspergillus would be very, very, very small indeed. Um, I do want to quickly come back to the the issue of immunocompromised, because um, I think you know we, we had talked about cancer patients and, and folks with sort of chronic disease. Um, they they are certainly immunocompromised, but there is some literature talking about that you know even if you have influenza or perhaps COVID nineteen, you could be quote unquote, immunocompromised and therefore maybe more susceptible to an infection from aspergillus. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So those two viruses, and there's another one in um, Korea and China, which greatly increase the risk of getting life-threatening invasive aspergillosis. So in the COVID uh, outbreak, this was really well demonstrated so that if you ended up in intensive care with your COVID, you were you know, very breathless on oxygen, possibly the tube down. Um, the If you had aspergillus as well, and a, somewhere between 5 and 20% of people got aspergillosis as well, uh, so it's quite a lot of people, um, your risk of uh, surviving was halved. You, it, 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 aspergillosis doubles your risk of dying. And that's true for influenza as well. Um, there is a slight difference between them because the risk of getting aspergillosis with influenza is as you go into ICU. It seems to be very, very early in the process. And so influenza is definitely altering the, um, the way that the body responds to the fungus. And you just can't get rid of it if you have influenza. So. That would be another warning on the pack is if you have a viral infection, do not smoke. That would be a very helpful piece that could be added. Um, with COVID, it seems to be a bit later in ICU. So people who get it tend to be have been in ICU for a week or so before they get aspergillosis. And that's probably partly because they're given steroids as part of the treatment for COVID and which is helpful for the COVID, but unhelpful for aspergillus. Mm. So aspergillus, corticosteroids knock out the immune system so you can't respond, and they make aspergillus grow faster. So they have a double whammy, um, steroids. And uh, um, and so so those you're quite right to point those, those things out. Just as if there's a bit of technical background, there were a very careful study was done in seven intensive care units in Belgium and Holland over about five years during flu seasons. And the background rate of aspergillosis in their normal ICU patients coming through the door was one in 20, was 5%. So that was quite a high rate. Um, but if you had influenza, it went up to 19%. So it was a four times higher rate. And it, as I say, it doubled the mortality. So influenza and aspergillus are not a good mix at all. Interesting. So another thing 
too, in talking about the risk of aspergillus as it results to cannabis. Um, so first, there's there's the users, right, who, who are actually using the product, but then also the farmers as well is something that that has come up, or or the trimmers, or or the folks who are sort of processing the actual plants. Um, risk for them as well as they're doing that that they could be inhaling sort of these large um, amounts of of spores if if it's not properly uh, dried and and processed. Yes, so there is a definite risk that there is, we know from other occupations that um, uh, multiple fungal exposures do lead to lung disease. Um, it's uh, usually people are doing that are fairly healthy before they start, so that's a good start. Um, and not everybody would get sick. Some people just don't even seem to notice aspergillus, they get rid of it fine. So it isn't a, a, a risk for everybody, but it is a risk for some. And so I think um, there are a couple of ways of handling that. One of them is ensuring that the plants are dried as quickly as possible so that there isn't very much dampness. And if there is a flood or there's damp gets into the um, bales and the, it's a damp thing, they should probably just all be discarded because there will be masses of aspergillus in, in those. Um, and the second thing is that you can wear masks. There are N3 masks which prevent infection with TB and other things, and they would also mostly prevent infection with aspergillus. The problem is wearing a mask for hours on end is pretty uncomfortable, and a lot of people end up, you know, because they get all sweaty behind them, and and then they end up moving it around their face because it's uncomfortable, and so it doesn't work perfectly. I think it's fair to say, but with with dry plants the risk is much lower than it is with damp plants um so i guess more broadly here what do you see as the major rising risk factor for aspergillosis again this might be in general not necessarily related to cannabis but what do you see as the major rising risk factor for aspergillosis that researchers should be examining so the um the, the area that's underdeveloped in research terms and clinical terms is the patients with COPD uh, who typically are between 50 and 75 years old. They've usually been smokers, but not always. Um, and they're pretty breathless. And the standard of care for those patients is when you get an exacerbation, you're much more breathless, possibly related to a virus or a bacterial infection. Or, or a chemical exposure in some patients, they're given steroids. And that those steroids probably increase the risk of aspergillosis. So we did an estimation two, three years ago now, how many people probably have aspergillosis in the context of COPD, and it's in the millions. It's a lot of people across the world, uh, a particularly large group in China, because they, there's a lot of smoking in China. Um, but it's true in other parts of the world as well. And I'm sure it's true in America. And it's quite a difficult diagnosis and it's not always picked up. And if patients aren't better, then you give more steroid and that's bad for this entity. So uh, I think that's one area. And then the other thing that we're going to see is patients with many uh, complex multi-diseases. As you get older, we collect diseases in general. Um, and... Um, so I think the patients at risk in their 
60 plus who have diabetes, who are on a bit of steroid, who have a bit of a bad chest, a bit of heart failure, a bit of this, a bit of that, those patients start to become at risk as well. Mm. And if they end up in intensive care, then that's the group, the 5% group that get disease in intensive care, basically. Well, that's interesting. Well, and it's interesting too, I guess, in the context of cannabis, where the over 65 demographic is the fastest growing uh, user base for cannabis. So um, maybe something to consider there. Yes. Um, and one thing I, I do want to circle back to what we were saying about the farmers and, you know, repeated exposure to, um, to the fungus. Would that also possibly apply to users? Like if they are continually using a a product that is contaminated with sort of low levels, lower levels than we were discussing earlier, could sort of that accumulate over time and, and be a concern? I think it's possible, yes. It does depend how often it's used and how much aspergillus is there. The other, there are other things, of course, in cannabis cigarettes. It's not just aspergillus. There's cannabinoids and other things. And they may have an effect on the lungs as well. Uh, we know that for tar and tobacco is an example. Um, and the other thing is that many people smoke um, cannabis without a filter. And that has two things. One of them needs more of that crud ends up in your lungs compared with being filtered out. And it also means that the smoke is much hotter. And uh, we, we we did see one man who smoked like 20 joints a day. I mean, he was really, you know, he was, you know, and he's he basically destroyed his lungs and he had aspergillus as well, but probably it was the heat of the cigarette, of the of the a joint that actually did most of the damage. Uh, difficult to prove, you know, how do you prove that? Not easy, um, but, but I suspect that, it, there, are, there are other factors. So it isn't just aspergillus that can damage lungs. It's these other things as well. Right. And the damaged lung is going to be a more... The damaged lung is going to be a more suitable or um, a better habitat for the aspergillus yes. to sort of take yeah. hold. So it may be a self-perpetuating circle um, yeah. in a negative way. That's correct. Yeah. All right. So I guess... So winding down here, is there one thing that you wish sort of the general public understood about aspergillus and aspergillosis? Again, this doesn't have to necessarily even apply directly to cannabis. Sure. So I think patients who have bad chests, um, whether it's because of asthma, COPD, or some other chest disease, when they get ill, they should ask the doctor, and probably every doctor they see, is it a fungus in my lungs? Because it's very easy for doctors to not think about it, to not remember about it. And if they're reminded, then there are special tests that they can order and they can actually get to the diagnosis. So, and often it's thought about by senior, very experienced doctors, they think about it, but you don't always see one of those doctors when you first arrive at ER or in a thing. And for a family doctor, aspergillosis is a very rare disease, apparently, because they wouldn't make a diagnosis in family practice, probably. So they won't think about it very often. So 
I think it's being aware of, of it and alerting uh, doctors to it. If you've got any chest problems, uh, particularly ongoing chronic chest problems. Excellent. And sorry, this is going to be a bit out of context, so or out of order. So I might have to go in and, uh, and edit this. But we did get a, a question from uh, someone that I wanted to make sure that I asked you. So. Cannabis farmers have expressed concern over the use of fungicides to prevent aspergillus contamination. Um, what could possibly be the impact of using fungicide? Um, sorry. What could the impact of fungicide use be for azole-resistant aspergillosis in cannabis processing or, or farmers? And could it possibly be a cannabis farmer's lung in our future? So it's a so the issue of spraying crops with fungicides is a very important issue because there is a bystander effect of um, emergence of resistance to azoles in aspergillus. So the aspergillus fumigatus isn't really a crop pathogen, but it lives in the soil. And when it's warm and moist and there's um, degraded plant material, it will grow. And so you spray the crops and uh, something like a third of all fungicides used are azoles around the world. And there's a, the number of azoles being used in the US in crops has gone up and up and up in recent years. So what happens then is you get the emergence of azole resistance in fumigate, aspergillus fumigatus. And then people breathe in azole resistant aspergillus. And then they don't respond to oral, to the normal and the best therapies. The best treatments for uh, aspergillosis are all azoles and the only oral treatments are azoles so if you have a resistant bug then you may have to have iv therapy and have it for long periods of time which is very uncomfortable the current rate of azole resistance in the us in where it's been measured is around three percent in europe it's around uh, between 15 and 20 percent and in Southeast Asia, it's between 80 and 95%. So we, we are going to see probably the loss of uh, azoles as treatment for aspergillosis if we continue to spray the crops with large amounts of, of azole. Wow. And if you don't have that option as a treatment, you know, what do you have? You, you have intravenous drugs, which are less effective and obviously need catheters and nurses to administer and much more expensive. And one of them is much more toxic as well. Um, so it, it, it's a big deal losing azoles. And it was one of the issues we had in our national center because patients would develop azole resistance on azole therapy um, because we gave it for such a long time because they had such difficult disease. And then we got really stuck. We couldn't really treat them properly. So there are new drugs in development, but they haven't arrived yet. Uh, they're probably about between one and three years away in the US. Now, are there better fungicide treatments that don't use azoles? That well, yes, there are, lots of, there are lots of different ones, actually. There's around 20 that are used, and they're often used in mixtures and, and sequential. So you have, you know, mixture A and then mixture B and then mixture C, and they're sprayed at 10-day intervals at certain points. It depends very much on the crop and, and how it's done. Uh, um, but yes, there are uh, about a third of the 
um, fungicides that are used in um, agriculture are um, are not uh, are azoles, and two thirds are not azoles. A lot of people, the term that's used, of course, in colloquial language, is pesticides, but it's actually fungi cause ninety percent of plant diseases. So it's actually fungicides are the biggest issue, and then you've got some weeds. So there's herbicides. And the pesticides are for the mosquitoes and the and other um, you know insects that eat the crops. Um, but fungicides are the are the major thing that is sprayed. Excellent. All right, Dr. Denning. Um, winding down here, I did want to give you an opportunity to mention any other resources that might be of interest to the watchers and listeners here, if they want to learn more about this topic, and also. I want to give you an opportunity to plug any websites or any anything else that you would like to share with, with the audience so that they can get in touch with you. Cool. So we do run um, a website called the Aspergillus website, which is aspergillus.org.uk. And there's loads and loads of materials on there, including a short section on um, cannabis and um, aspergillosis. Um, we also run an educational website primarily for healthcare professionals called fungaleducation.org, which is in English and in Spanish. And that's got a lot of videos um, of about the diseases and diagnostic tests and small numbers on radiology. And anybody on antifungal therapy on both of those websites, there's a link to drug interactions. So one of the problems with azoles and many other drugs is that they interfere with other drugs. So you can look it up. There's a whole section for patients and the normal and the public, uh, as well as healthcare professionals on, on drug interactions. So those, those may be helpful for you. Excellent. I will put those in the show description so people can check that out. So, all right. So I think we covered a lot of ground here today and it seems like we've arrived to somewhat of a conclusion that there is a risk for cannabis users, maybe certain ones in certain situations, um, fair to say, and that, you know, testing is probably prudent, but maybe we need to rethink the, uh, the limits. Yes, I would agree with that. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't, I know manufacturers don't like to put warnings on cigarettes, but, um, and their products, but I, I do think, um, general information about, um, patients at risk would be helpful. Excellent. Well, again, Dr. Denning, thank you so much for the time and, um, good luck with everything. Thank good. Thanks a lot. All right. All the best. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. David Denning. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Modern Canna Laboratories. Our next episode drops November 1st. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about the CanMed24 Innovation and Investment Summit happening May 12th through 15th at the Marriott Marco Island Resort in Florida. And book your package today because registration is open. We have assembled an amazing advisory board and we are currently accepting abstract submissions for oral and poster presentations. 
So if you have some novel research you would like to share, please submit your abstract today. Of course, you should also follow us on social media at CanMedEvents, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.